Welcome to this month's special programming series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. The use of electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, to treat mental illness was born from experimentation with a variety of physical interventions enacted upon psychiatric patients beginning in the 1930s. While other techniques have long been abandoned, ECT, or what is commonly referred to as shock therapy, is still used. Current data regarding frequency is unavailable. So how does ECT work? And for those listeners who received their medical training in the U.S. when ECT was out of favor, what exactly is the procedure? For answers to these questions in a discussion of the use of ECT today, we turn to my guest. Welcome to a special segment on psychiatry. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Toronto, Canada, is historian Edward Shorter, the Jason A. Hanna Chair in the History of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Shorter is the author of numerous books on the history of medicine, including his latest, Shock Therapy, A History of Electroconvulsive Treatment in Mental Illness. Welcome, Dr. Shorter. Hi. Dr. Shorter, could you walk us through the ECT procedure as it is performed today? What would we see if we were in the room? The first real event that happens is the administration of a barbiturate uh, anesthetic along with a muscle relaxant. The muscle relaxant is called succinylcholine. The barbiturate is not so much for the convulsive therapy as such because the patient is instantly unconscious after the convulsion. There isn't any pain. The barbiturate is used for the muscle relaxant because this was introduced in 1952. And in the early days, psychiatrists had the experience that the patients after receiving succinylcholine had the feeling, it was just a feeling, of not being able to catch their breath and they became uh, panicky and thought they were uh, about to suffocate. And so the best way to assuage patient anxiety about presumed suffocation was to give them a a general anesthetic, a short-acting barbiturate. Weren't there also some pretty serious injuries? Well, in the very early days there were, because an unmodified seizure it really does put patients at, at risk of injury. And until the introduction in 1952 of succinylcholine, the seizures were unmodified. However, let's not get carried away here. If you don't restrain the patient at all and the patient is allowed to seize freely on the table, there is a, a risk of spinal fractures or even fracturing a jaw or a femur, and these are serious complications. But this then came completely to an end in 1952 with succinylcholine. And so today's patient, we would see them and they would have received anesthesia and they'd be on the gurney. Yeah. Okay. And uh, they might have an IV line kept open as well. And so then the ECT machine will also have uh, an EEG, an electroencephalograph, and an EKG built into it, an electrocardiogram, so that the seizure can be monitored and so that the patient's cardiovascular activity can be monitored as well, and these produce uh, continuous printouts. And the patient may also be given supplementary oxygen in the form of a bag that is administered by a nurse, and finally there'll be a mouth guard uh, just in case patients jaw grinds or something like that. And then the the stimulus itself is administered. And the stimulus entails about as much electricity as you would use in very briefly flicking a light switch on and off. And then the brain convulsion takes place. There is no muscular convulsion in modified ECT. Uh, Nothing twitches, nothing moves. 
but you can see on the EEG a brain convulsion, uh, and it's traced on the graph, and the convulsion lasts from may maybe a half a minute to a minute. And then that is it. That is the convulsion, and the patient is then wheeled out of the treatment room into a recovery room and left uh, to... Uh, there'll be a, a period that lasts for about a half an hour of confusion and disorientation. And then the patient has gotten up and given a bit of orange juice, and after a bit more time, that's the end of the procedure. Uh, if a relative is there, the relative will take you out to your car. It's in, encouraged not to drive immediately after you've uh, had a session or help you get home on the subway, although you don't really need that much help. Your cognition returns to normal within an hour. There's been a lot of talk about side effects such as memory loss or brain damage. It's important to emphasize there is no brain damage at all. This is an urban myth. As for cognitive effects, uh, different patients react differently. The great majority of patients will have a brief and transitory loss of anterograde and retrograde memory. Retrograde is what happened in the past. Anterograde means the inability to lay memories down. And for the great majority of patients, this is brief and transitory. There are a few patients who have more serious memory deficits, but they are very few. And one has to weigh the risk of some kind of cognitive deficit with the risk of suicide. These are serious illnesses that are being treated. You wanted to ask a question. Go ahead. Which psychiatric diagnoses would merit the use of ECT today? I know it's varied in the past, but right now, what would it be used for? ECT is the treatment of choice, without question, for melancholia. There are two kinds of depressions. There's melancholic illness and non-melancholic illness. And if you have a melancholic patient who is not receiving convulsive therapy, that patient is not being adequately treated. ECT is also useful uh, very often in non-melancholic illness, although the greater the admixture of anxiety, the less appropriate probably is convulsive therapy. So it's melancholic depression that is the greatest indication by far for ECT. Also, manic patients respond preferentially to ECT, and it probably is the treatment of choice for mania as well. And then finally, catatonia responds beautifully to ECT. So those are the three main indications. It has to be emphasized that all three of these illnesses are chronic relapsing illnesses, and that if the patients are not maintained after completing a, a course of convulsive therapy, they are very much at risk of relapse, as indeed they are at risk of relapse after a course of pharmacotherapy. All of these illnesses are chronic and require long-term treatment. And the maintenance can be done with uh, follow-up ECT, or the maintenance uh, after ECT can be done with follow-up pharmacotherapy. But there does have to be maintenance, in, certainly in melancholia and in mania and catatonia as well. Mm -hmm. And how do today's practitioners explain ECT's effectiveness? Well, they aren't entirely able to explain it to themselves. The, the mechanism of ECT is certainly not known with certainty. And it remains a little bit of a black box, but certainly it has something to do with neuroendocrine mechanisms. ECT affects every part of the brain, but it also affects the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus, of course, is the key to the endocrine system. And along the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, there are dysfunctions in the major psychiatric illnesses. And along the HPT axis as well, the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, there are also dysfunctions. And... ECT addresses those dysfunctions in one way or another, but exactly 
how this plays out in neurobiological terms is still a little bit uncertain. What is the interaction between ECT and the neurotransmitters that affect hypothalamic function? This is still largely unknown, and it is unknown because research into ECT came pretty well to an end around 1960, and there hasn't been a lot of serious scientific investigation of the mechanisms of ECT for about the last 40 years because of this huge stigmatization. Let's talk about that. In a review of your book last month in the New England Journal of Medicine, the reviewer stated that a history of ECT should include an explanation of why there have been so few good studies. The reviewer believes that ECT can be an excellent treatment for depression and that the research community is obligated to prove this more robustly. Do you agree that there have been too few well-designed studies of electroconvulsive therapy? Oh, absolutely. That's 100% true. It's very hard to get uh, NIMH funding for ECT research. They give out a couple of grants a year, if that. Why do you suppose that is? Well, because it's still stigmatized in the eyes, not just uh, it's not really stigmatized anymore in the eyes of psychiatry because it's so demonstrably effective. But in political terms, giving a lot of money to ECT has the sound of giving a lot of money, for example, to lobotomy. There are still large sections of the media that see ECT as a form of torture. And so really because of the stigma that many neuroscientists just prefer to stay away from the whole issue and look at the interaction between neurotransmitters and major depression, for but, example. But there are some other physical treatments, such as deep brain stimulation or external electromagnetic treatments that do get funding for research. It looks like they're trying to act in a similar manner as ECT. Yes, that's a very astute comment. And they have had success in funding precisely because they are non-convulsive therapies. And it's the idea of the convulsion that turns off the politicians and turns off the public so much, even though uh, we know as a result of 60 years of practical experience that uh, convulsions are effective. And it's not at all clear that these magnetic stimulation treatments are effective at all. It, it's clear that they aren't as effective as ECT. Well, why do them? Well, the argument is that they have less of an impact on cognition, that the patients don't have uh, memory uh, deficits and so forth after they've had the stimulation treatments. And that may be true, but if you are giving them an inferior therapy, then the fact that the side effects are less severe isn't really that important if your patient ends up killing himself. So they're not looking for a convulsion in the electromagnetic treatments? There are electromagnetic treatments that are, in fact, intended to produce convulsions. There is a form of, of TMS that is convulsive. But there are now three or four principal mag-stim treatments, and the main treatments are non-convulsive. And they don't involve the passage of electricity into the brain they involve creating some kind of electrical field around the brain or magnetic, the whole concept of magnetic stimulation is a little bit of a euphemism. But in any event, they don't involve the direct passage of electricity into the brain for the purposes of a convulsion. And this is what gives them their appeal to... Yeah. Uh, to funders in particular. I wonder if it's really the electricity part that turns people off more than the convulsion, that the idea of passing electricity through the body is, is unappealing. Well, you know, there are a lot of things in medicine that are unappealing. Uh, a hip amputation, for example, is a ghastly sight that nobody who's a non-surgeon is probably ever going to see. A, a forceps delivery is a, a fearsome sight. My God, it looks like he's going to pull the infant's head off. There are lots of procedures in medicine that have bad optics. And I think the problem with ECT is that the 
optics that are associated with electricity are particularly awful because patients imagine that there's going to be the smell of burning flesh. They imagine that you're going to be strapped down. You aren't, of course, uh, strapped down. The idea of electricity used to be associated with electrocution in the electric chair. So there are just a, a lot of kind of cultural and social symbols that ECT definitely does not have going for it. But listen, this is medicine. We're dealing with patients' lives here. This isn't a, a television game show. Right. There's more to consider. You have been listening Listening to a special segment on psychiatry on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been historian Dr. Edward Shorter. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Shorter. A pleasure. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry.